0: Welcome to Chomping Down the Dietetic Exam, where I, Dietitian Faraz, and you, an awesome person, join forces to chomp down dietetic concepts into digestible bites, and provide you with practice questions, rationales, and tips to conquer your dietetic exam, and you will conquer it, because you are smart, you are skilled, and you got this. Hit it! (music) Everyone, thank you for tuning in. Hope you're doing well and staying safe. Before diving into the listener requested topics for today's episode, which will consist of lipid transporters, gastroparesis, and winterization, I got some really, really exciting news I gotta share with you. So, over the years, I've had a lot of podcast listeners and students ask me to develop a program that covers everything you need to know about the RD exam. Well, guess what? That's happened. I've developed a program that's really focused on visual learning and this program consists of 17 video lectures that cover all four domains and every topic that's relevant to the rd exam these topics are covered with full explanations tons of mnemonics illustrations animations tables and each video lecture also has a pre and post test and a super duper colorful set of corresponding notes this full program is now available on our website at ChompDownDietetics.com. Make sure to check out the program's sneak peek video on the website's homepage, and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. That being said, let's get into it. What particles transport dietary lipids in the bloodstream? A. Glycerol B. Micelles C. Chylomicrons D. Fatty Acids So, in order to answer this question correctly, we have to be aware of each answer choice's place and function with regards to lipid digestion. So, we'll do a brief synopsis of the process for contextualization, assuming you have the fundamentals down regarding the details and intricacies involved in lipid digestion, such as what emulsification is, hydrophilic substances versus hydrophobic substances, and so forth. So... As you know, glycerol, micelles, chylomicrons, and fatty acids are all connected to lipid digestion, which, although it starts in the mouth and stomach, once lipids hit the small intestine, that's that's the big time for them. That's Hollywood. Or better yet, lipidwood for them. Because that's where lipids get tons of attention and really get broken down into lipid globules. So, when chyme enters the duodenum, the body secretes, bile, which is super helpful in digesting lipids, particularly triglycerides, through emulsification. Now, lipids are hydrophobic. They feel the same way about water as I feel when I realize my baby has pooped and I have to change his diaper. It's terrifying. (laughs) So because lipids are hydrophobic, bile contains bile salts, which have hydrophobic sides that happily interact with the lipids, and hydrophilic sides, which happily interact with water. This is a pretty cool dichotomy, and because it exists, emulsification can take place, and the large lipid globules can become smaller. Now, lipase can come in and further break down these lipid globules into fatty acids and monoglycerides. Now, how will these lipids travel through the watery layer of mucus that coats the digestive tract lining? They will combine with bile salt and other fat-soluble substances to form micelles. Micelles have a fatty acid core with a water-soluble exterior, so they will be able to travel without issues. These micelles are temporary and transport their substances across the brush border of the intestinal cells and transfer the substances they are holding into the cell. Now that these substances are in the cell, they can regroup to form triglycerides which start combining with phospholipids, cholesterol and protein to make larger substances known as chylomicrons which are classified as lipoproteins. The protein is particularly noteworthy because out of all the lipoproteins, chylomicrons have the lowest amount of protein. It's actually protein that dictates the density of lipoproteins and Since chylomicrons have the least amount of protein, they are also considered to be the least dense. Although chylomicrons hold a variety of substances, they are mainly known for containing triglycerides because that is what takes up the most space in chylomicrons. About 80-95% to of a chylomicron consists of triglycerides. That's why it's also referred to as triglyceride-rich lipoprotein. Not only are they filled to the brim with triglycerides, chylomicrons transport these substances in the body's bloodstream and get them where they need to be, such as adipose, skeletal, cardiac cells. A way you can remember that chylomicrons are mainly filled with triglycerides is look at the word chylomicron. Chylo sort of sounds like chiro, as in chiropractor, and Chiropractors sometimes use essential oils to treat people, so you can link triglycerides to oils. Another way to remember is to look at the first part of chylomicron, which is C-H-Y, that's how it's spelled. It's similar to C-H-I, as in Chi-town, a.k.a. Chicago, which is known for its deep dish pizzas. You can think that eating too much deep dish pizza could increase triglycerides, Also, pizza is cut in triangles, which starts with tri, just like triglycerides. Now that we've briefly reviewed the process, let's go back to our appetizer question. What particles transport dietary lipids in the bloodstream? A. Glycerol B. Micelles C. Chylomicrons D. Fatty acids So one of the key words in this question is transport. And we know that the answer choices predominantly involved in transporting are micelles and chylomicrons. So we can eliminate glycerol and fatty acids as answer choices. Another key word in this question is bloodstream. Micelles transport their lipid substances across the brush border of the intestinal cells and transfer the substances they are holding into the cell. Chylomicrons transport their lipid substances in the body's bloodstream and get them where they need to be, such as adipose skeletal cardiac cells. Thus, C, chylomicrons, is the correct answer. Alright, let's move on to our next appetizer question. Here we go. Which of the following would be the best recommendation to treat gastroparesis? A, high fiber intake. B, high fat intake c small frequent meals d large infrequent meals so gastro means relating to the stomach and paresis means relating to muscle weakness or paralysis so gastroparesis essentially refers to the stomach's partial paralysis that is typically associated with either a delay or absence of the stomach being able to empty its contents into the small intestine. Gastroparesis is also referred to as delayed gastric emptying for this reason. The cause for gastroparesis is debatable, but one of the most consistent theories posits the involvement of the vagus nerve. In a person without gastroparesis, the vagus nerve sends signals to the stomach to contract, so that it can move food through the digestive tract. In gastroparesis, however, there is typically damage to the vagus nerve, which ends up compromising stomach motility and can have food back up. In other words, nerve damage, particularly to the vagus nerve, can result in gastroparesis. There have been a variety of conditions and disease states that have been associated with gastroparesis, such as scleroderma surgery, so something like a gastric resection, infection, Parkinson's, and diabetes. Focusing briefly on the link between diabetes and gastroparesis would be really helpful because gastroparesis is super common in diabetes. In fact, one estimate is that a third of all people with either type 1 or type 2 diabetes will experience it. And the theorized reason is that gastroparesis is due to the neuropathy that often presents in diabetes as a result of hyperglycemia. So, as you know, consistently super high amounts of blood glucose can decrease the elasticity of blood vessels and can cause them to narrow and impede their blood flow, coincidentally weakening the walls of the blood vessels, including those That supply neurons with the stuff they need to function, like oxygen and nutrients. So the stomach contains an enormous amount of neurons. So as neuropathy is taking place due to diabetes, naturally it'll reach the stomach and the neurons of the stomach will become compromised, which will compromise the stomach's natural functioning and ultimately make it more susceptible to gastroparesis. So, shifting gears to treatment. With regards to medical nutrition therapy, you want to avoid high fiber and a high fat diet because both generally slow gastric motility, and since that's already compromised in gastroparesis, the last thing you want to do is slow down the process even further You also want to recommend smaller, more frequent meals, because that will aid in getting the food to be more easily absorbed and out of the stomach quicker, as opposed to large meals, which will cause the stomach to have to take longer to process and may further exacerbate the issue. Another way gastroparesis is treated is through prokinetics, which amplify and better coordinate gastrointestinal contractions and speed up gastric emptying. They also have antiemetic effects, which is awesome because oftentimes when a patient is going through a bout of gastroparesis, the food is just stuck in their GI system, so it can cause nausea and vomiting, very unpleasant. So the antiemetic effect is super helpful. Typical prokinetics include metoclopramide, erythromycin, and domperidone which totally sounds like Dom Perignon. With that being said, let's revisit our appetizer question. Which of the following would be the best recommendation to treat gastroparesis? A. High fiber intake B. High fat intake C. Small frequent meals D. Large infrequent meals So let's go down the answer choices. Choice A and B would both be counterproductive to treating gastroparesis because they would slow down gastric motility even more than it already is and would thus further exacerbate the condition. So we can safely eliminate both of these answer choices. How about C, small frequent meals, and D, large infrequent meals? So, smaller, more frequent meals will aid in getting the food to be more easily absorbed and out of the stomach faster as opposed to large meals, which will cause the stomach to have to take longer to process and may further exacerbate the issue. Therefore, the correct answer is C, small, frequent meals. All right, let's move on to our next appetizer question. Here we go. Which of the following is not typically winterized? A, corn oil. B, cottonseed oil. C, soy oil. D, butter. So I feel like this is one of those concepts that you're only aware of because you're studying to become a dietitian or you work in the food industry. Like, the average person can't possibly have the need to study this topic. But... We do have to know this stuff, so let's chomp it down. So winterization is essentially a process to make stuff stay smooth in cold settings such as the fridge. This is with specific regards to oils because some cooking oils can solidify in the cold. This is due to the fact that oils often have waxes which contain compounds in them that can remain solid in the cold, due to their chemical properties. So if you live in a super cold area, then you would want to buy oil that has been winterized because you don't want to have to constantly heat your oil to be able to pour it out smoothly. That would be really annoying. So corn, soy, and cottonseed oil are typically oils that undergo winterization. You can remember this as cold sweater Christmas. The C's stand for corn and cottonseed, while the S stands for soy. Since cold, sweaters, and Christmas are all terms associated with the term winter, we can also link them to the term winterization. So, cold, sweater, Christmas. Corn oil, soy oil, cottonseed oil. Talking about all this really makes me wish it was winter time and I had some hot chocolate. But anyways... Winterization is also commonly employed for food products such as salad dressings and mayonnaise because these food products often have oils in them, and these oils often have waxes. So winterization is often done for mixing or aesthetic purposes. If you want to make a mayonnaise with oil, you want the oil to be able to mix properly without the wax compounds getting in the way, right? Also, you don't want a salad dressing or mayonnaise to be in the fridge that has a bunch of waxes because it may make these food products look solid or chunky. It just it wouldn't look very appetizing. People like their dressings and mayo to be smooth. Winterization can also make an oil look clear in the fridge, which is Also, much more aesthetically pleasing than non-winterized oil in the fridge, which can look cloudy. Nobody really wants cloudy oil. So, winterization involves a variety of phases, but the one that is of particular note is crystallization, which is the transformation of a liquid, gas, or solution into a crystal form. As an oil is being crystallized, the wax compounds in the oil are able to solidify and precipitate out. Basically, they get singled out, right? So then the wax compounds are basically scooped or filtered out. By doing this, the oil is now free from the wax compounds and is now a nice, pure liquid extract that can be mixed with the food product, which will now be able to stay smooth in the fridge, i.e., mayonnaise or salad dressing with that being said let's revisit our appetizer question which of the following is not typically winterized a corn oil b cottonseed oil c soy oil d butter so this is just one of those situations where a mnemonic comes really in handy and we totally have a mnemonic for winterization that's our cold sweater christmas So, applying that, we know that the C's stand for corn and cottonseed oil, and the S stands for soy oil. All three of these oils are typically winterized, so they are clear in the refrigerator after going through winterization. Butter, on the other hand, tends to stay solid in the refrigerator. It can get smoother, if it's setting at room temp but it's generally a world away in terms of its structure compared to oil right butter generally stays solid comparatively so generally the oils that undergo winterization is you know just so it looks good for consumers and also it mixes well neither of these two issues happen with butter because people expect butter to be solid so it's not really going to need any winterization so therefore d butter is the correct answer all right that's a wrap for today's episode remember to check us out on chompdowndietetics.com where we have our program that covers all relevant topics on the rd exam with video lectures and colorful notes you can also hit us up on our socials which are listed in the episode descriptions And this is where you can request topics and just let us know how you're doing with your exam journeys. With that being said, I will catch you later. Bye bye.